0: Father, we thank you for gathering us this morning as men who are committed to living under your authority, that is, under your word and by your grace. And we pray, Father, that both of those things would come out this morning, that as we engage um, this particular passage that's been around for 2,500 years, that you would meet us um, in the everyday of our own lives. We pray, God, that you would unravel things that need to be unraveled, that you would deconstruct us where we need deconstructing, Father, and that you would put us back together in the image of your Son. We pray that you would clothe us in the power of Jesus this morning as your men. In his name we pray, amen. I'm going to read from Daniel 5, and as you know, we're going through the book of Daniel. Uh, Some of the chapters are really long. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9, and then I'm going to skip to 17 through 31, That'll give you coverage of the narrative, basically. There's some other stuff in there that, of course, is important, but, but general coverage of the narrative. And I think you have just those verses on your handout this morning. So let me start in Daniel 5, verses 1 through 9, then we'll skip to 17 through 31 as we read God's Word together. Daniel 5, verse 1 starts like this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called out loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed, and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up, and whom he would he humbled. And you, his son, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that she should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is God's Word. I have a, um, I have a friend who walked on to play football at TCU in the 90s. Um, he came as a preferred walk-on and um, so that meant that he, didn't, he wasn't scholarship or anything, he just sort of asked him to walk on, and if you remember TCU in that era, it wasn't a great era, you know, they had this sort really of occasional bright spot with the Dainley and Thomason, but for the most part, they weren't very good. And he walked on, and he knew, he went to a small private Christian school in Fort Worth, and he knew that the competition level, sort of moving from that private school up to Division One football would be a little bit different, and be be harder. And so he goes to the first practice, and he said, I was engaged in some of the opening drills of the day. And one of the first drills was I was supposed to, he was a receiver, very fast, probably not as fast as me, but very fast, you get it. <laughs> and so he's running these opening drills during the day, and the drill was he had a def- defensive back on him, who he said was bigger and stronger and faster than anyone he'd ever seen before. And um, it was on him, and the drill was he was supposed to run around, catch the ball, and the defensive back was supposed to just check him. That was, the, that was the signal the drill was over. If you know what that means, it means, like, put your hands on him, of hit him halfway but don't really hit him. And so he said, you know, I ran a drill, caught the ball and the defensive back came and he checked me and he turned to me and said, Chad, i had never been hit that hard in my entire life. <laughs> and he was going half speed. And he said, I knew I was at TCU and I knew we were looking at a three and nine season and uh, at some point I might get in and have to be hit like that by an Oklahoma linebacker who was an All-American. And he said, at that moment I went home and I put my pads down, and I hung up my cleats, and I never came back again, and it was the best decision of my life. (laughs) Uh, uh, Every point, uh, excuse me, um, every man at some point has to come to terms with the limits of his own power. That is to say, there is a point uh, with every man when the cleats get hung up, that though in some world at some time you may have been a king, You may have had heroic status. At some point for every man, that reality is stripped away. I think this is a critical point for our maturity. Critical question in that moment. What do we do, not only with the power that we possess, but what do we do when that power is taken away? What do we have left? Where do we turn? Maybe you've gathered, but um, the book of Daniel, if you've been with us, is really a book, in in many ways, about power. And one of the things that we learn over and over again is that the ones who are invested with worldly power, the men who are ruling over these kingdoms, I mean, the greatest kingdom in the world at the moment, um, men like Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, and Belshazzar in this passage, men that have almost unlimited earthly authority, are actually very, very, very fragile. And the ones who are subjects... And foreign subjects at that, men like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, men like Daniel, who are sojourning in a foreign land as conquered men, that in comparison with those kings, they are much more confident, they are more resolute, they are more steady, they are more powerful than the kings whom they serve under. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to consider that irony. To think about that together and to contrast from this passage, worldly power, with this sort of otherworldly power that Daniel and and the men like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego embody in front of that power. And then I want to talk for a moment about how to stay connected to the second, no matter what happens to the first. How do we stay connected to the otherworldly power no matter what happens to our worldly power? So first, worldly power. What do we learn from the passage? Well, Let me describe the scene that we walk into in chapter five. So at the beginning of chapter five, Nebuchadnezzar is dead, and a new king, Belshazzar, has risen to the throne. And I think it's in verse 2, it's a couple different places in the passage. Definitely verse 18. Daniel calls him, that is Belshazzar, he calls him the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but that's it's probably just an alternate way of naming him as the successor, excuse me, the rightful successor and king to Nebuchadnezzar. So if you're into that, historical records show that there were a few kings in between Nebuchadnezzar and, and Belshazzar in the passage, a few different ones, and so uh, the two weren't biological related. So, so between chapters four and five, you have about 20 years, and you have some, like, some movement of power, you have some, some Game of Thrones like political intrigue where things are swapping hands, right? But uh, chapters 4 and 5 are very connected because chapter 4, if you were with us this uh, last week, chapter 4 ends in this way. And as it ends, it provides a bridge or a frame for this chapter. So here's how chapter 4 ends. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride... He is able to humble. And you notice Daniel brings that passage back up at the end as well as he's sort of laying things out for Belshazzar, right? But but what I want you to see is at the end of chapter 4, you have this sort of strong foreshadowing because when the curtain opens on chapter 5, it opens on on the scene of a man who is walking in pride. Belshazzar has summoned all his lords together for a feast, this is not just sort of a, you know, a Friday night party. It's not just-for-the-fun-of-it celebration. This is a political feast. It's a move that is intended to unite the leaders of Babylon because, lo and behold, a new power is on the rise. The neighboring Persians are encroaching, and Babylon's position on the world stage is under threat. And so what do you do if you're the emperor in that situation? What do you do if your own power is under threat? It's being challenged? Well, Belshazzar doubles down. (laughs) He puffs up his chest, and he gathers all his warlords together, and he shows everyone how many women he controls, and he he pulls out the spoils from the other nations that Babylon has conquered, including Jerusalem, and he signals the fact that he still believes in their national supremacy. He still believes in the invincibility of his own power. In the scene that we walk into in chapter 5, Belshazzar is parading his power in order to disguise his vulnerability with the neighboring Persians. I want you to think about that for a moment. Parading power in order to disguise vulnerability and weakness. Have you ever seen that happen before? Have you ever seen someone maneuver... Not you, of course, but someone you know closely. <laughs> you ever seen anyone maneuver in order to feed the illusion that they're still in control? You ever seen anyone hide facts that might expose the fact that they are vulnerable and weak? You know, we have cultural examples all the time, right? I mean, you can think of a ton of different things. I was just making a list earlier. We have Enron, we have the housing crisis. You know, I, I, I went back and read a story of Lance Armstrong, and when he was exposed, and one of the things he said, he said is, is my story was a perfect story that gained momentum. My power gained momentum, and I had to keep it going. In other words, I couldn't face the brute facts of what was going on, and I would do anything to keep it going. As I was um, preparing, sort of just thinking about the passage a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, tr- Trump's administration was under attack uh, for all the stuff with the Russians. It still is. Um, But one of Kellyanne and Conway's tweets to the Trump critics um, right around that time was to send out a tweet reminding everyone about the November election results. Now we were all there, right? Like it was just a couple months ago. We all remember the results. Why in the world, it had nothing to do with the issue at hand, why in the world would you do that? Well, you you take out the spoils of past wars, and you drink out of those vessels once again in order to divert attention away from the current threats. This happens all the time. It doesn't matter who it is. (laughs) Happens all the time in in not just public ways, but in personal ways. We feed the illusion of power in order to keep our vulnerabilities hidden. John Hawkins, who was here this morning, I'm sorry, John. You don't know where I'm going with this, which is kind of fun to watch you squirm a little bit. Let me tell you a story about John. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) He sent me an article a few weeks ago called "The Power Paradox," and in that article, the uh, psychologist who worked on the script for the movie uh, for the Pixar movie Inside Out talks about his findings working with powerful people. I just want I want you to just hear the conclusion of the writer who was writing about this author. Okay, says this: achieving power reliably turns people nasty. Research demonstrates that people who feel powerful are more likely to act impulsively, to have affairs, to drive inconsiderately, to lie, to argue that it's justifiable for them to break the rules that others should be following. And in one entertaining study by Keltner and his colleagues, to steal sweets from children. Rich people even shoplift more than the poor. <coughs> all in all, accumulating power seems to trigger a tendency to self absorption. In experiments, when people are asked to draw the letter E on their foreheads so that others can read it, <laughs> get this powerful people are more likely to draw it the right way around to themselves and backwards to onlookers. In a literal sense, they no longer see the world from other people's perspective what is he saying? That power has this corrosive momentum when it's paired with the brokenness in the human heart. And it's a corrosive momentum that not only gives rise to self-absorption and to callousness, but it also impairs our ability to see the world as it really is. In other words, power tempts us to see what we want to see, And to ignore the things that we don't want to see. And what does it give us the ability to ignore? It gives us the ability to ignore the truth about our weakness and vulnerability. About our weakness and vulnerability. I don't know how many of you were here, I guess, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, in the Sunday school hour, Sunday morning community hour when David Pallison spoke, David is the director of CCEF that's the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation up in Philadelphia he's a counselor by trade by profession and one of the stories that he told that hit me was he he told a story about what brought him to faith in Christ when he was a teenager if you remember that story he said look it was the experience that he had of watching his grandfather die his grandfather was a giant in his eyes and he said he watched his grandfather, he sat by his bedside as he slowly withered away when he was only a teenager, and he listened to his grandfather speak. And as he listened, what he heard was his grandfather tried to cling to something in that moment that made his life meaningful. Something in that moment that he had done, something that he achieved, something that was his, that would anchor the 70 or so years he had spent on earth. And, and Paulson said as a teenager, as he listened to his grandfather he could see that everything that he tried to grab onto, his work, his family, his projects, his civic responsibilities, his generosity, it all just slipped through the, his fingers. To watch his grandfather, this giant of a man in his own eyes, try and fail to hold on to something he had accomplished in the face of his own mortality, Allison said that was the cue for him early on that worldly achievement and power would never be sufficient to anchor a man's life. This is exactly what the handwriting on the wall exposes for Belshazzar. He yeah, had the middle of this great feast, this great demonstration of worldly power, unrivaled worldly power, right? And God sends this message in the form of a magic finger, something as sort of small and innocuous as a finger that is just writing on the wall, and only Daniel can read it. And the message essentially says this in interpretation. Three things. He says, you're about to die. Your kingdom is ending. You are about to die. You're you're going to be judged, and in your judgment, you are found insufficient. The scales have been weighed, and you, uh, you are found wanting. And three, all that you've accomplished and all that you've worked for, your kingdom, your legacy, it will be divided and scattered among your enemies. In other words, God is saying, Belshazzar, here is the sum total of all the power you think you possess. Here are the things that are most tempting for men to hold on to. Your life, your worthiness, your legacy. And God is saying, I am taking them all away. I'm going to take them away, and when I do, you're going to have to reckon with the fact. You're going to have to come face to face with the reality of who you are apart from those things. And you're going to find yourself in weakness and vulnerability. And the message to him and the message to us is you got to humble yourself before it's too late. You want to be on this side of recognizing those things before it's too late. What is the Lord teaching us? Well, one of the things is this. Whatever worldly power you possess this morning is on loan. (laughs) It's on loan. We all have some sort of power, and whatever power we possess is on loan. And one day the loan will come due. The loan will come due, and we will confront these three things at least and maybe simultaneously. We're going to die. We're going to be judged. And whatever legacy we have to leave, it is way beyond our control and our power to determine how it gets used. And what the Bible is teaching us this morning is that worldly power alone will be insufficient. It's not bad. It's insufficient to account for those realities in your life. You need more. Like Palestine's own grandfather, you need more to hold on to when that time comes. We find the, sort of the clue to that this morning in the disposition of Daniel. Let's look at Daniel in the story for a moment. What is it about Daniel? Well, I want you to notice this about Daniel. Daniel's pretty heroic in almost all the passages. The only one that he might not be heroic in is the one that, where Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego get thrown into flames, and we don't really know where Daniel was in that situation. But every other passage, he looks pretty good. I want you to notice in this passage that he does not have much worldly power, at least not in comparison to Belshazzar. Right? I mean, he has something, but but Daniel's a foreign subject. And when the king tells Daniel to come, guess what Daniel does? He comes. You'll notice, though, two things about Daniel in this passage that we also saw in the dispositions of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego from chapter 3. And that is this. When Daniel is summoned before a worldly power that is greater than his own, though on one hand he is subject to that power, he submits to it, on the other hand he is extremely bold in the face of it. Do you see that? He is both, he is both humble and fearless at the very same time. Humble in verse 17 because when he gets summoned, he, he basically tells Belshazzar, Do you see what he says? He gets summoned, he says, look, to love you, to do good for you right now, I don't need your rewards. I mean, Belshazzar, it's like Tim Cook, I know you can't do this, look, I get this, coming and offer you a third of apple, right? I mean, this is like uh, sort of tempting, a third of the empire, right? Here's a third of it, and he looks at him and says, look, I don't need your third. <laughs> what is he saying? I am fine in weakness and vulnerability. I am utterly at home here. I am utterly at home without your stuff in my own skin. This is like dessert for me. I can take it or leave it. Maybe you can't do that with dessert. It's dessert. I can take it or leave it, but my life is already full. I don't need anything else. And I also want you to notice that Daniel is fearless. In the rest of the passage, Daniel is able to look the king in the eyes and speak truth to power. Right? He tells him in verse 22, And you, his son have not humbled your heart, though you knew this, but you have instead lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Daniel doesn't add in there, hey, guess what? Don't kill the messenger. Just a messenger. He doesn't excuse himself or accuse himself. He puts himself squarely in the message. He is bold, and he is daring, and he is brave, though his life could be taken any moment. Now, how is that possible? What kind of power could produce a man Listen, who is simultaneously unafraid of his own weakness and also unafraid to speak truth to power at the very same time. What could produce a man like that? Look at the passage again. When Daniel is summoned, all right, listen, look closely here. When Daniel is summoned, in whose name does he come and speak? When Daniel is summoned, in whose name and whose power does he come in front of the king? Right? Not in his own name, not in his own power, but he comes in the power and in the name and on behalf of Yahweh. And that's really important because it means that Daniel's sort of self-awareness or self-understanding is that he is an ambassador. He is an emissary. He is, as it were, a son of the royal court of the God of heaven and earth. And it means that, at least in Daniel's mind, that he feels he is entitled to all the protection and authority and power of the one who has sent him. He comes in the name of the Lord, in the kingdom of God. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament just for a moment. One of the ways the New Testament differs from the Old is the New Testament fleshes out the fuller story of the kingdom of God. And here's how Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells that fuller story in Philippians 2. He says, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he says this. He describes him. Who, that is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself of that power, taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, here is the true ambassador. Here is the fuller Daniel. Here is the true emissary, the true royal son of whom Daniel was only a shadow. Jesus not only came in the name of God, Jesus came as God. He was God. He gave up his royal throne to be clothed in weakness, to come to tell us the truth about ourselves, to be the actual handwriting on the wall for us, to be the Word made flesh. And when this royal emissary, this royal son came, he came in under weakness and vulnerability. He spoke truth to power as a servant. And on the cross, what happened? What happened on the cross? He faced death. He faced his own mortality. On the cross, Jesus himself was weighed as a sinner and found wanting. He was condemned. On the cross, if you read John's account, all of his possessions, all the way down to his garments, were divided and given as spoils to his enemies, to the soldiers at the foot of the cross. Do you see that? The inscription that was meant for Belshazzar This moment of exposure meant to confront the truth, the rawness of human vulnerability and weakness, this became the handwriting on the wall that Jesus himself submitted to in order to meet us as men in our place of greatest need. Now, why would he do that? Well, Paul finishes in Philippians 2 this way. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What Paul is saying is that here is lasting power. In the person of Jesus Christ, God emptied himself and he died for you now that you might empty yourself and live for him. That you might walk in the power of his name that you might live and walk this day in union with the one to whom all power, all kingdoms, will eventually bow. Man, you walk in the power. You come in the power. You are summoned in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and you are clothed in His righteousness and glory. This morning, where you sit, if you know Him. That is your position in Christ. That is a position that Daniel knew only partially, but it is one now that you have fully in the gospel this morning. You say, Chad, well, how do we do that well? How do we sort of walk in that power? I mean, in the world of Babylon, in the world of distractions and power claims, in the temptations of our own flesh, how do we do this well? If you back up in Philippians 2, then uh, Paul says this, he says, have this mind among you, Okay? that is already yours in Christ. What Paul is saying is that what is already true about you, you have to have that in you. You have to internalize that, the truth about you as royal sons and emissaries and ambassadors. You have to, you have to help it to sink in as a mindset by which you live every moment of every day. Okay, great. Well, how do you do that? Let me tell you a story. One of the earliest stories I remember from my childhood is, um, this is probably the earliest memory I have, and there are no pictures of it, and so I, I think it's a true memory, right? I wasn't sort of reformed by a picture. Was I, My dad took me when I was four or five to, uh, um, to Sesame Street on, I, on Ice in downtown Nashville, big Nashville auditorium. We watched the show together, and um, after the show was over, I got up, and I ran out, as everyone was sort of coming out of their seats, I ran out of the auditorium to meet him at the exit, because I, was, I intended for him to see how grown up I was. I wanted him to be proud of me. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to show him I can do this on my own, so I ran out and sort of to meet him at the exit. Well, guess what? I got lost. The sea of people, I mean, I was up to their knees, <laughs> right? Couldn't see anything, and I was lost, and I sort of searched the auditorium, went back, couldn't find him, and And eventually, I just gave up, and I sat down in a corner of this huge auditorium, and I started crying. And that's when a man, a tall man, came and found me there, and he he helped me by picking me up. And he put me on his shoulders, and he just waited. And he waited, the other crowd, the crowd was leaving, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, waited because that man knew that my my dad would come for me. He knew that there was no way that my father would leave that auditorium without me, without having me. And of course, he was right. All of a sudden, everyone else is gone. My dad comes running around the corner, and I saw him there coming for me. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that before age five, before that moment, my dad had told me he loved me on a thousand occasions. But I got to tell you, that is the moment in my own imagination that was impressed upon me as proof of his love. That was the moment when I internalized it. When I saw him coming for me, actually coming for me, in the thick of my weakness and vulnerability. How is it that you begin to internalize God's love, his grace, his power in your life? Listen to me. You have to go to the limits of your own power. Now, we all have them. Sometimes those limits are forced upon us. But you have to go to those limits, those places in your own mind and heart where you know you are weak and afraid and vulnerable and ashamed. And you have to see Jesus coming for you in those places. Not in the moments where you feel strong, where your quiet times have been regular, those are important, but in the moments where you feel guilty and weak and unable to save yourself, that those are the places that Jesus wants to come for you. Yes, you can and should pray. Yes, you can and should worship. Yes, you can and should live in obedience. But until you viscerally go and meet God in the place where you are at the end of yourself, all the other stuff will have a hollowness to it. Because the cross will merely feel like a good story. It won't feel like your story, but it is your story. Philippians 2 is not just the story of Jesus. It is the story of every Christian who ever lived. It is your story this, moment, this morning as you are clothed in his righteousness and glo- glory. May he make us men in his image who are both fearless and humble. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your word to us in Daniel 5. You for your love for us, we pray, O oh God, that we would internalize it. We pray, Father, that you would make us uh, men who know what it is to have that mind among us, who walk in the power of Jesus, who are not afraid and yet humble at the very same time. We pray, God, that you would do this for the sake of your kingdom, that you are expanding to cover the earth even as the waters cover the sea. In Christ's name, amen.